0: Hey, before we get started, I wanted to let you know that the show is both on Instagram and Twitter under Unstructured P. Please come by, check it out if you like the show, say hello, and tell me what you think. Thanks. My name is Eric Hunley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. Today, we are joined by the author... Brad Schreiber, who was self-described as psychotically eclectic. He has written multiple books, including Revolution's End, most recently Music is Power. He also wrote Death in Paradise, which I think was turned into a TV
1: series. Is that correct, Brad? That's right. It was called North Mission Road, and it looked at some of the cases in the history of the L.A. coroner.
0: Well, fantastic. Now, it's great to have you on, Brad, by the
1: way. I got a little Thank ahead you of myself. Very much. I am not at all insulted by being called psychotically eclectic because (laughs) I've written for all media and um, I'm an instructor. I'm a literary consultant and um, working in all different media is fascinating to me. Each one has its special challenges and its rewards. Yeah, you
0: also do tours from my understanding with um, some fun, warm people like uh, the Manson family? And...
1: <laughs> no, no, I, I don't tour with the Manson family. They, <laughs> they probably wouldn't like the tour that I conduct, Eric. Uh, I work with a company called Esotoric. Mm-hmm. That is the architectural and L.A. history tour company. And Richard Shave and Kim Cooper are amazing people. They're preservationists as well as knowing an incredible amount. So I have a tour called Manson Land that I've been doing with their company for about four years. And because it's so high profile, you know, dealing with the Manson murders and Mm -hmm. has new information that's never been published, it's sold out for four Mm. years. Uh, The other tour I do for them is related to revolution's end. Um, That subtitle, by the way, on that book is the Patty Hearst kidnapping mind control And the secret history of Donald DeFries and the SLA. SLA being the Symbionese Liberation Army, which kidnapped Patty in 1974. Turns out, long story short, Donald DeFries, the black prisoner who became the head of the SLA, had drugs used on him at the California Medical Facility at Vacaville. And then a CIA officer in conjunction with Vacaville Prison, decide to break him out and run him as a double agent.
0: Now, you're you, I I got confused on who it was now. I know Colton Westbrook is kind of who you had um, yeah, as a very person good. running
1: him. Westbrook was the black CIA officer who who led Donald DeFries to believe that he was just going to be a double agent in the Bay Area, which was the center in the 70s of far-left activism and Ronald Reagan wanted to get the Black Panthers and the anti-war terrorists locked up. Uh, You know, they considered the Black Panthers the greatest threat in the United States. And of course, they were founded in Oakland. So I've done two-hour radio shows on this, and my responsibility is to make it coherent in in about 30 more seconds. So the way I'm going to do that is tell you that Revolution's End is about a black man named Donald Defries who never had a chance, became a double agent, and sadly was wiped out along with five other white followers – in nineteen seventy four in Los Angeles in the largest shootout in US history. Um and the white followers never knew. Was that larger that than Waco? Was double agent. I'm sorry? Something about Waco? Was
0: yeah, was that larger than Waco? There
1: were five there were five hundred LAPD, California Highway Patrol and FBI people firing into a small stucco house in South Central Los Angeles on May 17 of 1974. They fired 10,000 rounds, Eric, into that house. Mm -hmm. And they received fire of about 100 bullets. And finally, and, and this is the one thing that wasn't researched of other people, I found out from an LA Times report that what the Times reported as tear gas being shot into that house on East 54th Street really was incendiary devices they were called Mm. pyrotechnic grenades they were meant only for outdoor riot control
0: like flash grenade type things
1: yes and they knew that if they fired it in the house it would set it on fire but you had a, a primarily white police force in a totally black neighborhood on national tv by the way forgot to mention that on all three networks showing 500 officers firing into this house to take out a double agent who they didn't want to live because he would have testified uh, against the FBI, the LAPD, and so forth and so on.
0: i That's a weird thing to hear, because that means that you're saying all the cops themselves were knowledgeable, or?
1: No, no not at all. Okay. They were only a small group. Donald Defries had worked for something in the LAPD called the Criminal Conspiracy Section. Right, he was a snitch. He was a snitch, and again, referring back to Governor Ronald Reagan and um, uh, Evel Younger, mm-hmm. who was his Attorney General and very militant, their attitude was: anything we do to undermine the Black Panthers, whether it's extra legal or not, is justified because they're a threat. So, you know, local law enforcement. Well, the LAPD was like no other agency in the United States at that time, Eric, because they had FBI and CIA officers who would come to Parker Center and liaise with the LAPD about the criminal conspiracy section and what they were doing, because Oakland was the center of the Black Panthers and California had more militancy than anywhere else in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So it's this wild story that is very complex, and I knew about it as a young man growing up in the Bay area. And finally I stumbled onto a story by Dick Russell in Argosy published in 1976 that put together the final pieces. And I went to him and I said, why haven't you written a book? And he said, no major publisher is going to touch this, Brad. I have all the documents, but you you know, you're not going to get a major book deal in New York. I said, well, I'm obsessed with it. So I'll buy your research off you. And he gave me it, and you know, it was the Rosetta Stone of research about the creation of the SLA.
0: And was Dick Russell the um, PI? No, terrible name. Dick
1: Russell was um, a and and still is a wonderful political writer and researcher who now writes on environmental issues. Mm, okay. Um, yeah, yeah, but there. It's mind-boggling and, and highly dense, um, but really fascinating. And Jeffrey Tubin's book came out the same day as mine. Oh really? And of course: Yeah, and of course he didn't follow this, because, again, um, no major publisher in New York, no matter how much research you have, is going to publish a book that criticizes Ronald Reagan, the CIA, the FBI, the LAPD. And in my defense, I also criticized the far left and how naive they were. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, there's a great book about the CIA MK Ultra drug experiments, which are part of Revolution's End. It's called Poisoner in Chief, and it's by a terrific writer named Stephen Kinzer, about Sidney Gottlieb, who ran MKUltra for the CIA for 20 years, and a very peculiar guy. So that's kind of a fun book, and that just came out.
0: Yeah, I'm starting to get a vibe on some of that. I've, I know you've looked into my back catalog, and I have some people on who deal with mind control and things like that, um, mm-hmm. Chase Hughes. And I have a book that was written by somebody at, I, don't, I think it might have been Cambridge. I can't remember the school, mm-hmm. but he was very deep into that really early days of, um, of the mind control. Back to yeah. Cuba well, see,
1: I knew about it. As I say, when I was going to San Francisco state, um, I had the grades and got accepted to Stanford and UC Berkeley, but I didn't have the money. So SF state was my only choice, but I did a lot of political research while I was in a comedy group in the Bay area called the Burlingame Philharmonic orchestra. And, um, It was just something that fascinated me, basically started when I was at state and I saw a presentation about the JFK assassination by, and this is kind of weird, an organization based in Cambridge, Mass., Mm. called the Assassination Information Bureau. And they laid out a lot of the basic um, ideas and the forensics that were, were proof that it was impossible for one person to have killed JFK. So then all the alternative newspapers and KPFA and KPFK, the Pacifica radio stations in California, were talking about the fact that this Donald DeFries character was working for the criminal conspiracy section. And what about the drugs that were used on him as a prisoner? And I had a big slice of the picture. But again, until I got Dick Russell's research I didn't realize the full story. Well, and
0: you were doing um, parodies of um, the phone calls or the recordings of the SLA yeah. in your theater group, correct?
1: Yeah, it was a, co- a comedy theater group, Burlington Philharmonic Orchestra, and we were at KPFA in Berkeley, and uh, we we did a we did a bit called Patty Hearst for Kraft Philadelphia Cream Cheese and um it it's it sounds like patty is on a tape much like the tapes that were being played at KPFA the communiques from the SLA and i think the end of the bit was somebody yells off mic the pigs cheese it with crap <laughs> so i figured that the you know ultra hip people in berkeley would would kind of smile morbidly and say oh that's darkly amusing we actually got calls from people going is this another SLA communique? I mean is the SLA making fun of Craft Philadelphia Cream cheese? What's going on here?
0: Well, in fairness, you have to admit that some of their messaging was kind of confusing.
1: Oh, well, you know, one of the things I obviously I'm politically rather far left, so far left that I'm ready to fall off the edge. But in revolution's end, I say, you know, you want to create an organization that is going to change America in a very militant era, you don't take on military names, you also don't uh, you know rob banks, uh, you don't kill the first black superintendent of schools in Oakland, which which as people will read in Revolutions end. Uh, DeFries was ordered to do. Mm -hmm. Basically, you know how it is with a snitch. When you're on the outside, your controllers say you do as I say, and if you don't, we'll just leap that you're a snitch and someone will take you out on the outside. Mm -hmm. So DeFries basically made a Faustian bargain that no other black prisoner at Vacaville Prison would sign on to because they knew it was a Faustian bargain and that they'd be as good as dead. The only reason that DeFries was the one who agreed is because he was targeted because he'd already been a snitch for the LAPD, and they figured, this guy's perfect for us. And yeah. he was the only one to to agree to it, even though other black prisoners were asked to run the SLA before him. I told you, it's an insane story, and we could spend the whole interview talking about it, but um, sure. I'm glad that I wrote it because it stayed with me for decades. And then finally, I figured if I don't write this, nobody else is going to. And Dick Russell said, "You have my blessing, and now uh, you have my research."
0: Well, it's it's kind of a dark book. I mean, you don't walk away feeling good. <laughs> <to
1: be honest. laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, I wrote a a humor writing book called "What Are You Laughing At," and uh, you know that's that's my more up book in the nine or ten that I've written. But um, there's humor, believe it or not, in revolutions. End. Oh, there is.
0: One thing that I thought was kind of amusing or fascinating was the attempted rape of Nancy Ling Perry.
1: Well, that's kind of dark too. Yeah, where she, where some kid tried didn't know that she was a member of the SLA, um, rang the doorbell at her safe house, and she basically kicked his ass, knocked the right. gun out of his hand, and 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 scared him away. Yeah, but all I was, the people. I was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You you rang the doorbell. Yeah, of the wrong house, buddy. But also, DeFreeze, well, how can we put this tastefully? He was undereducated, let us say. And Mm -hmm. he was on drugs. He was a drug dealer while he was in Vacaville. They were giving him women to sleep with. Including Patty Hearst. Yes, yes, this is definitely so. This is from Dick Russell's research. Um, And anyway, so the quirky story is that he would go to other black prisoners he trusted at Vauxville, and he wouldn't tell them, I'm a double agent and they're breaking me out. He'd say, I'm going to break out of here and form my own revolutionary group, and then I'm going to have you come with me. Oh, really? What's it called? And he forgot the name that he was given by Colston Westbrook. So he said, oh, that's it's right. called the the, the Lebanese, Lebanese Liberation yeah. Army. He got the name wrong. Yep,
0: yeah, that's right. I remember that. Yeah, he um I guess he came across sympathetic in some ways, but I I, mean, I don't know. I I don't have that much um sympathy for the group personally. From no,
1: what I read. No, of course not because they were they were violent, but it was an entrapment and basically DeFreeze, um the day that he signed on to be an LAPD double agent basically that was that was the end of his freedom yeah, now, well, and um
0: to reach was... back to uh the mk alter and all that i did find yeah. a book it's called spiritualism or spiritism by g.h estabrooks
1: are you familiar oh with that? estabrooks yeah um I, i'm sorry to tell you that um estabrooks in my research is one of those guys in the middle of mind control he's like the sydney gottlieb kind of character. He's like the Louis Julian West of UCLA who did uh, mind control experiments. You know the CIA gave huge amounts of money mm-hmm. not only to, you know, what you would think would be, you know, typical prisons, but also to universities. Mm-hmm. You know, to journalists William F Buckley was on the CIA payroll, Eric. So you get a sense of how insidious their influence was back then.
0: Well, and the Unabomber, if I recall, was part of the uh, experiment, shall we say.
1: I've heard that as well. So so I guess you get um, a sense of Reagan and, of course, Nixon being president and their sense of militarism and paranoia toward what was considered to be a possible revolution And I don't think we'll ever see it's like again in U.S. history. Well, that was one question I had for you. Literally, yeah, yeah. Literally, I was just going to say, Eric, people like Reagan and Evel Younger and Richard Nixon believed there was going to be a military attempt at overthrowing the U.S. government, which I think is absurd.
0: Well, there there was a lot of people who were feeding that stuff, too. It's like uh, I couldn't help but think of parallels with – Colton Westbrook and how he was sort of running, you know, Donald Defries. But then there's some uh-huh. speculation about Krishna Venta being an influence on Charles Manson, and all of these guys kind of uh-huh. had this running theme of, well, okay, I'm. It's hard to get my thoughts together, but I found it very interesting that you were talking uh-huh. about the worries of, I guess you say, a black revolution, and they were emulating the situation with the SLA, but Charles Manson was emulating that situation or his family's emulating that situation as well. And they're
1: completely yeah, opposite, yeah, well, which is well, one of the things I, I talk about on the esoteric bus tour of Manson land. Um, God bless Richard and Kim, because they have introduced me to people in the LA sheriff's department and the, it once again, it's the black Panthers. It turns out that there's an angle Um, by which um, Manson's followers, especially the quote-unquote girls, were trading dynamite found in abandoned gold mines in California with Black Panthers. Um, And in exchange, the girls brought back to Manson's group guns and one day the Black Panthers greeted Manson's girls with the dynamite and said, thank you, now get the hell out of here or before we kill you. And that was the end of the relationship. Mm. So the LAPD and the L.A. sheriffs both could have arrested, well, they did arrest Charles Manson and his followers initially and then let them out, and then the infamous murders happened. They could have kept them in jail. And basically my research reveals through you know Richard and Kim helping me that the LAPD and, and the L.A. Sheriff's Department thought that there was going to be an a violent engagement between Charles Manson's followers and the Black Panthers mm. and they left them out there hoping for that engagement so that they could sweep up and arrest any Black Panthers so so there's a similarity in terms of the theme of we'll do anything to break up the Black Panthers um, between Revolution's End and, and of course, the Manson murders.
0: And would it be fair speculation? I've always kind of felt that um, Charles Manson himself was nowhere near as dynamic or fantastic as his billing.
1: (laughs) Well, if you're talking about his music, Eric, I would tend to agree with you. I think it's pretty bland. Um, Charles Manson... Again, I like because i've I started in writing theater, mm-hmm. when I write a nonfiction book, I want the protagonist, no matter how negative, to be three-dimensional. sure. and and without apologizing for Charles Manson, you've got to remember that his mother was a prostitute. He sure. never knew his father. He was raped in jail and mm-hmm. in the reformatories, and he was not a normal guy before he got out of his teens. I agree. So one thing he learned was how to manipulate young women to, to tell them they were beautiful. He learned from Dale Carnegie. He actually worked for a while for Scientology. It was wild. He worked for and Scientology? He, you got cut off. Yeah, he was, a, he was a guy who worked for Scientology in Hollywood and, and was trying to recruit people. And that didn't work out so well. My good friend Paul Krasner, who we lost not too long ago, had done a lot of really great articles about the SLA and about Manson. Mm. And he found out that Manson was let go by the Scientologist because he was a little creepy. But he wanted the reason he studied it, Eric, is he wanted to learn how to manipulate the, the women that mm. would eventually become his family. Mm-hmm. And again, without going too far down the rabbit hole, the uh, Mansonland tour talks about the fact that he wasn't completely in control of the family. Exactly. Tex Watson, what I'm Tex Watson and Linda Kasabian were running drug deals without his knowing it. Tex Watson introduced Charles Manson to Sharon Tate. It wasn't a random murder. So if if you take, if you take, Quentin Tarantino's amusing movie, and you take Tom O'Neill's chaos book, which is 20 years of, here are all the people I met and I still don't know what happened. And you set all that aside and say, this guy, yes, was a lunatic who manipulated people, and he was burning people on drug deals, and the people in his family got out of control and and killed people without his authorization you have a better understanding of what Manson was about. And if you look into Vincent Bugliosi, who wrote Helter Skelter, which sold, you know, a couple million copies, sure, you come it. to understand that he was accused of prosecutorial misconduct because he was trying to use Susan Atkins as a star witness. And the Mansonites said, you testify against Charlie and you're in big trouble. So all of a sudden she was unreliable. And Bugliosi was stuck with Linda Kasabian, and he said, you know, put your hair up in pigtails and look innocent. We'll forget the fact that you were one of the biggest LSD dealers in Boston. We'll forget the fact that you and Tex Watson were burning people in drug deals in Los Angeles. And you will testify that Charles Manson ordered the murders and if you do that we will give you immunity and if you don't do that you will never see the light of day again
0: well that's pretty common i mean honestly it's yeah. not unique to uh, the manson family i mean they're always trying to flip somebody
1: sure but in essence they're flipping linda kasabian to lie so so actually buliosi is also um guilty of uh, leaking stuff to the press which could have created a mistrial and Charles Manson could have walked. And, and part of all of this, I guess the best way to wrap this part up, part of all this is that they had a legitimate fear in the LADA's office. And that fear was if Charles Manson was ripping off people with drugs and Tex Watson and Bobby Beausoleil went crazy in, in drug burns and killed somebody in a panic, mm-hmm. Charles Manson is an accessory. And in 1970, an accessory to murder could get 18 months. Can you imagine with the world interest in the Manson murders, what would have happened if the LADA, even if they got convictions against the others, if Charles Manson only got 18 months, they had to lie and say that he ordered the murders. Now, I'm not saying he's a good guy and that he should have walked free. But there was no way in hell. And again, it's Evel Younger, our pal who worked with Ronald Reagan and the SLA, was Evel Younger, who basically went to Bugliosi, who was two years in the DA's office, went around the DA who was in charge, who said, hey, it's just a bunch of drug burns. And and Younger realized that Buliosi was saying, not only could it hurt our reputation If Manson gets accessory, but it will make our reputation and our careers if we say he's this Spengali who hypnotized people to murder rather than saying they're just a bunch of burnouts who screwed up in drug burns. And that, my friend, is the inside story of the Manson murders.
0: Well, that makes sense. And truthfully, nobody would really care if it wasn't for Sharon Tate. Same way as nobody really care about the SLA without Patty Hearst
1: this is this is very true which is a uh, kind of a sad comment because when you when you think about you know what the LAPD and the CIA were doing it, it, it's terrible it, it's a horrible history and people should know more about this stuff but again People perceive it as radical politics, and it doesn't sell, and so forth, and so on.
0: Well, and I wanted to I'm, ask you about that a little bit because you, you, you know, admittedly, say you're, I guess, um, somewhere to the left of Bernie Sanders. Um,
1: when well, you're, I'm, looking- I'm a practical guy. I know that when Elizabeth Warren says, "I want Medicare for all," um, that she's making a huge tactical error as a politician. Because to not recognize how powerful the health industry and big pharma is in this country is to just be naive. Like there are the things that you and I want in the world, Eric, and then there are things that are possible given the system. Well, you can't boil the ocean.
0: No, uh, that's not where I was going. (laughs) Where I was going is that I look at you know, a lot of the stuff that happened there, and it's obviously from the left or would be perceived as left, but there also have been some gross misjustices or, you know, real questions about things going to the right. Uh-huh. And, you know, a lot of people say that Waco was way out of hand. Uh-huh. And there are yeah. other instances like that because Waco kind of got generated. I forget the um, other one. Um, uh, Ruby Ridge, sorry, Ruby Ridge yeah, Ruby is Ridge. acknowledged by most as, you know, terrible, the and, and yeah. they were hardcore right-winging, borderline Nazis, I, I know all that, but I'm kind of wondering if this is not a um, government that's anti-left, maybe it's just, it's a government that's anti, anti-government, anti does that make sense? <laughs>
1: it, it's kind of curious, because I've been on uh, shows where the host is far right, But what they appreciate about my research is that I'm saying, look at what these agencies have done in the name of justice and broken the law. It's a you.
0: It's kind of a you.
1: All of a a sudden, there's a middle ground. Sure. Now, of course, if I talked about, you know, forgiving college debt, they go, "Ah, get off my show. But, you know, there's this interesting middle ground of of people. Who do not trust the government, and of course, you know, if Congress is at you know 16 percent, and you know Donald Trump's impeached, obviously there's a huge movement in this country rejecting trust in government. The question is, how do you change the system to make it better? Um, there's so many things that uh, prevent that: uh, lobbying, um, you know, campaign finance reform. Um, you know, Citizens United. There, there are so many things that enable this system that a lot of people say, "Hey, lobbying is a form of graft. It's a, it's a, an industry paying someone in order to look at the bills that they want submitted on the floor of Congress." Well, that doesn't sound very, very democratic to me. But that's the way our country operates. Mm-hmm. So well, you can be a wild-eyed radical. But then you say, okay, how do you change the system? And frankly, my opinion is you're not going to get rid of K Street in Washington, D.C., where the lobbyists are. Mm-hmm. So what you have to do if, if you don't like what's going on is to create a huge financial PAC, a PAC, a political action committee for whatever it is that you want to change. Because the only way in a system that is controlled by money is to have more money and more influence. And that's the way I think we change things. If you want to get automatic weapons off the street or you know, change healthcare or whatever, you're not going to eliminate the system that we have, right. but it's a system based on money and influence and favors. So how do you convince the senators and representatives to vote for you? You go, we're going to give you more money than they give you. It sounds completely insane and corrupt, but it's actually a practical approach to where we are with democracy in 2019.
0: Right, well, and one thing that I've noticed is there's only one city in this country that no matter what, during a recession or during the good times, it always grows.
1: Mm. That's
0: DC, it's booming there. It's always growing, they're always building. There's always something going up there. And it's kind of funny because that's one area that produces almost no tangible goods.
1: <laughs> it's lawyer heaven there. They, they, they give birth to more lawyers probably than anywhere else on earth.
0: <sighs> lawyers, lobbyists, accountants. Yeah. Oh, my. Yeah,
1: yeah exactly.
0: So moving but, forward, I think that some would also argue that you can influence politics via culture, and mm-hmm. that's kind of the premise of Music is Power, correct?
1: Yes, yes. So the subtitle on that being um, Popular Songs, Social Justice, and the Will to Change. I don't know why I came up with the phrase will to change, but it it just resonated because People have such a negative uh, attitude toward and and there is a movement of authoritarianism going on in the world. We know that there's a mass migration of peoples based on not only climate change, but authoritarians and anti-immigration policies. And it's not just obviously about the wall in the United States. It's everywhere. It's It's a really tragic movement. And so the will to change means what are you willing to do to try and be part of a movement? And people are so disgusted with politics that I started thinking people are really moved by music. So I decided to do a book that covers in the last hundred years every genre of music that's ever had popular, quote unquote, protest songs. Mm -hmm. I prefer to call them socially conscious songs. Because protest songs sounds like the whole book's about in you know, the sixties and it's not. It starts with, you know, Woody Guthrie and Joe Hill and Pete Seeger sure. and then into the folk revival of Bob Dylan and Baez. But we've got everything. We've got Tom Lear and the Smothers Brothers in comedy. We've got hip hop music with NWA and Grandmaster Flash. And there's even country music in this book. Mm-hmm. Um So, you know, Jeannie C. Riley's Harper Valley PTA was probably the first socially conscious country song to talk about small-mindedness in in small towns that kind of revere country music and feel that, um, you know, they're the salt of the earth. It was a, a woman who had never had a hit, and Harper Valley PTA is basically a song about a woman who is being condemned for wearing short skirts. Right. And She goes up in front of the PTA and says, oh, well, how come so-and-so had to leave town so quickly with, with her boss not explaining it? And how come <laughs> you're always you know, nipping at gin? You know, And how come you walk around naked and you leave your blinds up? Right. So um, it sold two million copies. It was the only hit for Jeannie Riley in her career. But even in country music, There has been socially conscious music.
0: Well, I would actually argue that like the Dixie chicks are braver than many of the artists you put up because she went against the grain or I'm sorry, not she, they went against the grain completely. The country music area. You're right
1: though. You're right though. It's Natalie Maines. You're talking about who said, you know, in London, this is 10 days before the invasion of Iraq. Right, Right. She, She's um, in Shepherd's Bush in London. She says, we want you all to know that we're ashamed that the president of the United States is from Texas, where the Dixie Chicks are from. Well, the country music establishment, radio stations, the fans, they all turned on them. And in Barbara Koppel's documentary, Shut Up and Sing, you see when they get a death threat when they're in Dallas.
0: And that's why I was saying that they were braver. I mean, there's a lot of people who, quote, protest and throw it out there. It's like, look, Rolling Stone is not um, going to trash you for protesting the government in any way. No. Not like the country music industry if you're going to go against uh, a traditional-style president. So that that t- you know, I think there's different levels of bravery, and I just want to point out that I do think that was actually brave.
1: Yeah, and they're they're actually one of the la- the last two acts that I talk about in music is power are the Dixie Chicks and Green Day, and Green Day's American Idiot is a really interesting example to come after the Dixie Chicks because even though the Dixie Chicks were attacked, their following album, Not Ready to Make Nice, actually won a bunch of Grammys. And by the time Green Day is touring American Idiot and then eventually get a musical on Broadway in which some of the characters are decimated by American society, including one of them being a soldier coming back wounded from Iraq, they benefited by the passage of time in Iraq Mm -hmm. so that the lack of weapons of mass destruction and, you know, Colin Powell you know, not telling us the truth in front of the UN and, you know, Bush saying that the nine 11 attackers were connected to Saddam when they're actually from Saudi Arabia, which is a client state of the United States. Mm -hmm. So the green day, by the time they tour, a lot of people who were super critical of Natalie Maines, just saying, you know, George W. Bush is an idiot. Um, all of a sudden they were, welcome, not only in Europe, but in the United States. Now, admittedly, they're kind of hard rock with a punk edge. Yeah, they're punk rock stitch And and country music is more traditionally patriotic people. exactly. They tend to be more (laughs)
0: right. Exactly. And that's why I was saying, you know, it's like um, you're not going to find uh, many people in the punker world um, getting upset if you trash um, Bush or Trump or anybody like that.
1: Although, now, if you go, you go know, in the country, demographics road, yeah. are changing. You know, it, sure. it's fascinating. I mean, look. This is my attitude, Eric. When half the people in America don't vote, anything is possible in terms of political change. If you find a way to motivate the people who have given up on the system,
0: mm-hmm. well, apathy is one of the biggest problems we have. Yeah, but yeah, I'd I like to believe- do
1: something about apathy, but ah, <laughs> uh, you know, what's the point?
0: Exactly. Well, first, look locally. That's the part I think is funny.
1: Yeah. Well, one of the people I worked with who was very politically active and gets his own chapter in music is Powers Frank Zappa. He was trying to create a late night show um, called Night School. And Mm. I was going to be his head writer. He was fascinating. He, He grew up, you know, the chapter on him, I talk about how he grew up on the grounds of the Edgewood Arsenal in Maryland which had huge tanks of mustard gas mm-hmm. like a mile away from their house. And and Zappa's father actually had skin tests that had been done with chemicals cuz he got paid extra if he agreed to be a guinea pig and have these, you know, skin tests with, you know, chemicals done. So, and Zappa himself had asthma as a child. Mm. So, by the time they get to California, you can imagine the shaping of the psyche of this guy who saw this horrible stuff that the government was doing that was directly affecting his family. He was kind of a
0: teetotaler too though himself, right? Yeah. He he
1: didn't do drugs. I mean, as bizarre and wonderful and strange and scatological as his music was, he didn't do drugs. Uh, He, he told his band members, you know, we're going to rehearse the hell out of this stuff because his charts were incredibly complex. Mm Mm-hmm unusual time signatures and you know, just phenomenal music and a great variation. You know, he wrote classical music as well. He used the synclavier or the synclavier as some people say it, but I call it the synclavier, which at the time you could load in any tone and you could play it on the keyboard. So Mm. the sound of breaking glass could be processed into the synclavier and you could play breaking glass on the keyboard. Okay. Um, in any event, he was kind of a remarkable guy to work with. And, you know, I'd show up at his house for a writing session and he had C-SPAN and C-SPAN 2 on, and he'd be listening to the debates of, you know, the, the Congress and he'd, he'd be brightly saying, oh, that guy's full of crap. And I, that guy just took money from so-and-so. He was so knowledgeable about the corruption that he was obsessed with it and amused by it. And, of course, he was a great hero because the Parents Music Resource Center, which was trying to censor rock music lyrics With Tipper and Gore. album covers. Tipper Gore, right. Al Gore was, was on that committee, and, and Tipper was part of PMRC. And so was James Baker's wife, um, Secretary of State James Baker. Hmm. That Zappa took tens of thousands of dollars in 1986 dollars out of his own pocket to fight, you know, what the PMRC was trying to do. And partly through his efforts, it failed. So he was rather patriotic. He put his money where his mouth was about politics.
0: Yeah, he also kind of came across as, um, from what little I know, a touch cynical.
1: Oh, a touch. (laughs) He was very cynical. But he wasn't so cynical that he dropped out of trying to change the system this This was a guy who's more libertarian than he was democratic. Mm, okay. He wanted he wanted the country to keep its hands off of you know his pocketbook, which is a very libertarian value. Sure. and don't forget, I mean, he was a compo- a composer, a conductor, a musician, an engineer, a producer, and a distributor of his own music. Right. And then he went off into when he did video, he also funded that himself. That's a and
0: typical libertarian um shall we say combination in, in term, because somebody who is so self-reliant mm-hmm. and smart will often skew libertarian because they're in the mode of leave me alone.
1: Yeah, well a lot of musicians have been ripped off historically because they didn't pay attention to the contracts they were signing. And Zappa was I'm in charge and I will do all the necessary footwork in order to look over contracts because I want to be the boss.
0: I wonder what he would think of Spotify and things like that now.
1: He would hate it. By the way, John McLaughlin, the wonderful electric guitarist who was in the Mahavishnu Orchestra, and I got to interview him for Music is Power talking about Jimi Hendrix. And McLaughlin told me, that's he knows people who have had a million hits on Spotify and get pathetic royalty checks
0: oh yeah, yeah so they are age. not being
1: compensated fairly so in in essence, unless you're one of the very few who break big and you know get a lot of television promotion, you can still be uh a band that gets a lot of renown and a lot of hits and a lot of sales. And you, you can barely make a living. And that's a very sad change in the music industry. And, and McLaughlin also told me another thing, which I agree with and makes me a little sad when he left miles Davis and he started working with his own band, the Mahavishnu orchestra, they used to pair them up with like country rock bands and hard rock, and folk rock. And in a way, they would team up people with, with other people that weren't in their genre. And people's attitude in going to live music was, oh, this is gonna be kind of interesting. Let's see who's supporting John McLaughlin. And sometimes it worked, and sometimes people said, I don't care, I just wanna see John McLaughlin. But you won't see that anymore. You won't see mixing of genres. In live music acts in the U.S. anymore. Well, and, and I think that's too bad.
0: Some of that wasn't some of that created by um, I don't know if you've seen I think it's called corporate radio, but in the late '90s, how all of the radio stations they you know changed the laws up and they consolidated. So you had Clear Channel and groups like that who wound up owning like every radio station in the same town.
1: Well. Look, jazz music in the U.S. is always going to be very select, and it's always going to be more popular in Europe. That's just about taste. Sure. But what Claire Channel did was it, it also eliminated disc jockeys mm-hmm. influencing the playlist. Exactly. Because all of a sudden it was corporate. And all of a sudden the corporation owned more formerly independent stations.
0: And it's the same artists right around the uh, you know early oddies are still there. It's like time stop. Yeah, you
1: know, you know, you're talking to a guy, Eric, who's a cranky, not a hippie. I I kind of missed the whole hippie thing. I was too young for that. Mm-hmm. But the ethos of experimentation and open mindedness is very important to me as, as a creative person. So whether I'm writing or I'm working as a literary consultant, and finding out what the client wants to do and encouraging them, no matter whether it's you know something that's very specialized and won't have a big audience, if the client wants to do it, I want to help them get there. And I grew up on radio in the Bay Area in San Francisco, so we're talking about KMPX and KSAN, the first two free-form FM stations in the country. And those guys would walk into the studio, Eric, and go, okay, well, you know, I just heard about this band, you know, the Pentangle, and they kind of are medieval England folk music, but then we're going to follow that up with Jimi Hendrix, and then it'll be Odetta, and then Buffy St. Marie, and they would play such a unique combination of music that you could be exposed to stuff you would never hear otherwise. And that's not really possible anymore, and it makes me really cranky,
0: but at the same time, I hate to say it the independent artists are out there um YouTube yeah. has been a channel for some artists who never would have gotten discovered that's to true come out and by taking i hate to say you know the money out of um out of it now it's really kind of a they have to really believe and really go at it because they're not going to do it for the bucks.
1: Well, let me put it this way. I think that this is the best time ever in history to be a fan of music because Spotify and YouTube and all the different methods of dispersing music, it's fantastic. You know, you, you don't just listen to your FM, AM radio anymore. But the problem goes back to John McLaughlin talking about Spotify it's harder than ever to make a living as a musician. The same thing is true in books. You know, there's been a retraction in publishing. You know, it sounds like we're going around and around. It's it's the corporatocracy. Mm -hmm. You know, it's five or six companies owning all the major publishers. If you said to me, Brad, you can publish your own book right now and and put it on Kindle, I'd go, great. Do you think you're going to make as much money as... As getting a book published by a major New York publisher? Probably not. Unless you're E.L. E. James. More opportunity and less money is what I'm saying.
0: Right. It's a weird, yeah, it's it's a crazy balance. I was going to say, unless you're E.L. James, and she managed to pull that one out.
1: Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, I'm not saying there aren't exceptions. Sure. E-book publishing, Eric, is actually a very great place for genre publishing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, dark, gothic, stuff, very sexualized um, novels, romance novels. Well, Especially those, because I feel like
0: those are the novels that people wouldn't read on the train because the cover would be up. But now it's <laughs> on a Kindle.
1: Nobody can see what you have. That's right. That's right. Nobody can see that salacious artwork on the cover. So but, but those are also driven by incredible fandom. And that, that's part of the effort for bands and authors who aren't with the nature label or publisher is you gotta find a way to find your audience. And it takes a lot of work. It's really a full-time job. So you need the money to hire, you know, somebody who's great with, with publicists, you know, oh. who are really connected or someone who can manage your, your social media network. And right. that's something you have to do every single day. So when I work with an author who says, well, I wanna write this book and I wanna self-publish it. I said, well, I'll help you get it as good as you can with my notes, but you know that it's gonna take a lot of work. Oh, no, I don't wanna do that. I only wanna write the book. Right. All right, well then hire someone who's great with social media. You know, I want them to know what they're up against.
0: Well, and can we discuss that for a second? Because I think it's important, there's a lot of creators who listen, this is a podcast, um, and it's a similar principle. <laughs> What I believe is it takes a good three years or more to actually take hold. And I'm speaking especially from like a podcast area. But Mm. I think books probably aren't that different either. It takes some time.
1: Well, I'm sorry to say, again, if we're talking about the model of the big five or six in, in New York publishing, you have a very short window, much like if you're making a studio movie in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. It, you'll be in stores only as long as the book is selling well. Now, this is, of course, aside from Amazon, which drives online sales. Sure. So if you write a book and nobody's heard of you and somehow it's a breakout success, they'll keep it in the stores as long as it's selling. Exactly. But don't forget the volume of books being published traditionally means that if it doesn't do well, you've got two months, three months. You know now you can still be a success if you have efforts to use social media to drive people to Amazon. Mm-hmm. Sadly, Barnes and Noble and all the other online publishers are a fraction of what Amazon is. Amazon's the big dog.
0: Yeah, it's 80 -20 rule um, and first mover advantage, but
1: yes. yeah. So and... you could still you could still fail in the stores and still have a financial and creative success. Uh, if you drive online sales, but you've got to find your audience. And and it's fractionated, you know? Mm.
0: Well, audiobooks also have really um, taken off.
1: Yeah, I, I noted when we talked uh, before we started uh, recording that you like listening to audio. You listen to the audio of Revolution's End. Correct. And uh, that was incredibly fun, but I learned a number of things about the audiobook industry I didn't know. And one is they go really fast. You're recording, you know, what was it? I think it's eight or nine hours, Revolutions Mm -hmm. end. And, you know, I went into a studio here in Los Angeles, and that's part of um, the the producer's house. He has a home studio. Mm -hmm. And you're doing six hours of talking in a day. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, "Ah, can I have a break here? Yeah, you can have 15 minutes to have some hot tea, and then we're back in. Oh, it's work. We want we want you to finish in four days. It's brutal. And good God, you know, I'll be I'll be lucky if my voices start cracking at the end of this interview. But it was also incredibly empowering. And I know that it's a different experience to hear someone read a book to you than it is to to read it yourself. And some people have an inclination to eBooks and some like physical and some like audio. Well,
0: it's a timing thing. It's the same reason podcasts are, are very popular too. You could do two things at once. I can be reading a book while mowing the lawn, while doing dishes, while driving to work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, that allows me to fit time into the day.
1: You know what's really ironic about it though, Eric, is that radio drama, is not successful still as a medium in this country, and this is the golden age of podcasting. I'm looking into developing a podcast, by the way, mm-hmm. um, for Death in Paradise, my book about the LA coroner. Nice, that'll go well. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, true crime kind of drives podcasting, so that's kind of a natural fit. But I love radio drama, and you would think with so many people listening to podcasts, that they would be exploring that avenue as well.
0: Oh, it's out there. Uh, lore, I believe, is audio drama. Um, a lot of audio drama. It's coming up.
1: Is it? I I hope so because it's got so see big the kind they... of programming from from radio stations.
0: Oh no, 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 no. It's independence, but what's happening is it's big enough that like podcast movement, which is the largest conference, has a track just for audio drama.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. I was lucky enough to adapt the science fiction work of two of my favorite writers, Ray Bradbury, who I knew before he died. Really? Wow. Um, I, I did um, a short story of his called the one who waits about a well on Mars that inhabits the spirits of all the dead Martians. And then when an American uh, NASA crew land on the planet, the voice of the well takes over each of them psychically until oh. they're all dead and they join with the well as one. Very spooky. And and then the other is probably my favorite science fiction writer, Philip K. Dick. Mm. He had a short story that I did for um, NPR as well yeah. <laughs> called um, Sales Pitch. And this was, you know, usually science fiction isn't very funny. They're mm. usually very dark or it's driven by hardware and violence. But Sales Pitch, is a future where you walk down the street in your town and there are robots that are constantly going, hello, Eric Hundley, I would like to offer you my services. And they try and mm-hmm. sell you on stuff and they drive you crazy. And you go, leave me alone. And everywhere you go are sales robots. And if one gets in your house, they don't have to leave. Have you been on Facebook lately?
0: Have you been on Facebook lately? It's the same thing. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and so it's the story of one guy who hates what society has become, and a sales robot gets into his house and won't leave until he signs the contract to have the sales robot fix everything in his life. And eventually he kind of loses and goes, I'm going to take my commuter rocket and go to that vacation planet and get away from all this. <laughs> so that's sales pitch. And Philip K. Dick was really, I think, maybe the greatest science fiction writer because the variety of concepts, humor versus dramatic, um, he explored um, mind control, he explored the identity of what it is to be human. You know, he, ha- he was just beyond most writers. What I think is funny
0: is I kind of consider Philip K. Dick to be like the uh, velvet underground of science fiction. You know the old saw about the Velvet Underground. Not many people bought their albums, but everyone who did started a band. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not many people read Philip K. Dick, but everyone who did was a sci-fi writer.
1: Yeah, but they do now. And what's really tragic about it is, you know, it's it's the the Van Gogh principle. You know, yeah. Now you're now you're painting sell for you know eighty million dollars, but during your lifetime you were this poor, starving exactly. Kvetch, You know. Well, Philip K. Dick was living in an apartment in Fullerton in Orange County. I've exactly. been to it. It's no great shakes, pal. And once he died, Blade Runner comes out. And now you have to pay plenty to get the rights to even a short story. Oh, I yeah. don't think that radio series I, I wrote sales pitch for could could actually be done today because it would cost too much for the rights. It was produced and aired on NPR um you know, when you could actually afford to pay for the rights. Now you've got to be, you know, deep-pocketed. And, of course, there are very many, you know, film and uh, television projects based on his work. But all of it has come after poor Phil left us. So I feel kind of bad about that.
0: Wow. Now, to move forward, there's so much to to go now. (laughs) Well, for today, we'll have to wrap it up because we're going to run – we could go on for four hours and unfortunately i'm not joe rogan can't do yeah, that
1: and and i i'm gonna have to take a lot more lozenges if i do that
0: <laughs> exactly so um to wrap things up i had a curiosity about um mm. a guy who wrote a blurb on your book uh, t jefferson parker
1: mm, wonderful uh jeff parker and i were on a panel when death in paradise my book on the l.a coroner came out and we became good friends I wrote an interview with him up for The Writer magazine. And then when I was doing Revolutions in I sent it to him, and he loved it. He, he, um, he started out in journalism, as a lot of very successful mystery and suspense writers do.
0: Connolly, I think, is another one. That Michael is...
1: Connolly is also another. That's right. So he, he knows how to tell a really well-paced story. But there are elements not only of, you know, drug cartels and sheriff's deputies. He gets into, you know, demonic possession. He, gets, he has a very poetic sense. And the one thing I can tell you, Eric, when I interviewed him, is um, he doesn't read a lot of true crime or suspense fiction. He reads novelists. Mm. And I think that's pretty interesting that he understands that the dimensionality of characters is something you'd see more in literary fiction. And his training as a journalist teaches him how to really pace a great novel so that you're turning the pages. And the blending of those two styles, I think, is is something that really makes him, well, a three-time Edgar Award winner.
0: Yeah, I think he's the only one, isn't he?
1: Yeah, yeah. And And a very, very low-key guy. I can't believe how egoless he is. Because I've met a lot of showbiz people who I admire, but, you know, you kind of want to slap them with a fish sometimes because they're just arrogant. (laughs) And Jeff Parker, if you just bumped into him somewhere, you'd say, oh, you're kind of a surfer. You have probably a surfboard company that you own in, in Huntington Beach. No, he's one of the great, you know... Crime novelist of all time. Very cool guy.
0: Well, that's awesome. And what is coming up next for Brad Schreiber?
1: Well, I'm working on a memoir that takes place when I was 17 to 22 years old, and a lot of crazy stuff happened. Um, Also, I have a partner, and we're taking Death in Paradise and developing it for both a podcast and for television. Very cool. And And – I love doing, I'm going to continue doing the tours for Esoteric. There might be a Manson book in there somewhere because the research that I found from Manson Land, like the stuff I found for the SLA and Revolution's End, still hasn't been published. So again, maybe it's up to me to sit down and do the damn thing. It'll sell. (laughs) Manson sells. There, There you go. And I recognize that too, that radical politics in the 70s. Probably doesn't sell as well as you know drugs in Hollywood and all all the madness connected to the Manson story.
0: Well, fantastic! Now people can follow you at Cyber dot com.
1: Yeah, yeah. I used to work at KCT as a writer producer, and I'd pick up the phone. You know, it was rushed. I go Brad Schreiber, Brad Schreiber. One day <laughs> the person on the other end of the phone went Brash Cyber. <laughs> so that's my website. Um. I'm at Brad Schreiber on Twitter. I have archives of my writing. If you want to go to Huffington Post or Medium, I do journalism there. But mostly it's uh, through my website that I connect with people and have samples of my work and, and loved hearing from people. You know, I love that people come back into your life sometimes six, seven years after you worked with them. It's That's an right. interesting principle. Well,
0: fantastic. And hey, Brad, thank you so much for coming
1: on. Hey, I really enjoyed it, Eric. And thank you for the six to 10 hours you had to spend learning about me.
0: (laughs) No worries. I enjoyed it. Me too. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please consider subscribing for free. And I mean for free. It is always free. There's no billing, anything else. You can subscribe in your player of choice, which is probably right in your hands. Or you can go to unstructuredpod.com. And there are plenty of links there. Thank you so much. And in the spirit of sharing, here's a couple more shows you may want to check out. Hey, I'm Studio Steve. And I'm Veronica. And we, and we are, are the Podcasters. We have a podcast all
1: about podcasting.
0: We cover everything related to the craft. Pod- pod- how to start a podcast, how to improve a podcast, how to promote a podcast, and how to reach a bigger audience. So come check out our podcast, Pod Sound School. We're on all of the podcast players or on our website,
1: podsoundschool.com.
0: We are dedicated to provide our podskies with up-to-date, easy, and actionable information, sometimes outrageous and always fun. And now, back to your regularly scheduled programming.
1: What Was That Like might just be the most intriguing podcast you'll ever hear. Each episode is a conversation with a regular person who's been through an extremely unusual
0: situation. Like Jeremy, who was bitten by a rattlesnake. Or Jennifer, who
1: accidentally killed someone. Or Luke, who got caught smuggling cocaine. Real people in unreal situations. Listen and subscribe at whatwasthatlike.com.